Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 3 for our first reading, our New Testament reading. Not a very long chapter with pretty much a unified theme. Uh, Paul will continue in this chapter on what he had been talking about with the Jews and Gentiles in chapter 2, but with a fuller understanding here. So let's go ahead and read together. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1, hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read... Ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him... Be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. So I think it it, it would be legitimate, fine to say about chapter 3 here that what we are talking about is the mystery. Paul will, will term it a mystery. I think it's helpful to know, first of all, what a mystery is before we we begin to open it up. What is a mystery, biblically speaking? We all know what a mystery is, you know, in 
in literary genre, right? It's a, it's a you know some sort of uh, thing that uh, is going on, and they're you know they drop little clues and breadcrumbs, and you're trying to figure it all out. And then sometimes uh, some of the better writers, right? When you when you come to the end of a mystery, you'll hear echoes of that in those breadcrumbs all the way back, maybe on the first page of the book, right? For a good mystery writer. Other times, the ones that aren't so good, what they'll do is they'll bring in completely unknown things on the last page, and oh, well, kind of nonplus there, right? But that's what a mystery is, right? Uh, Biblically speaking, a mystery is something that is for a time hidden and then revealed. Something that is unseen and then either will be seen or has been seen. So it's something that remains hidden for a time and then either will be seen later or will be manifested later or maybe uh, will be manifested uh, only uh, at the end of days. <coughs> so Paul will use that word mystery in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says, Let a man so account of us as ministers of Jesus Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. What are the mysteries that Paul is speaking uh, about there. Well, those are ministerial things that God has determined to take place through the work of the ministry in the hearts of his people, right? Those gracious things that God bestows through the work of the ministry, whether that's preaching or private counseling or, or the administration of the sacraments or some other thing like that. And it's something that is, it's called a mystery there because it's really not seen. <clears throat> the ministry of the gospel, some folks have said, that it is one of, the, uh, one of the most thankless jobs of all because the fruit of it is really not seen. You say, well, Pastor, there are these great big ministries out there that have thousands and thousands and thousands of people. What do you mean it's not seen? I say, exactly. That's right. Because normally the ministry is not seen. Its effects are not particularly seen. If you go out in battle and you conquer the enemy, you take his lands. That's something that is obvious. But the advancement of the gospel is in some ways an unseen thing. It is perceived by faith and not sight. So that's why that would be called a mystery. Stewards of the mysteries of Christ. Well, there is a mystery that Paul unfolds here. May I say that the Lord, as a good mystery writer had given us cues and clues all the way through the Old Testament that the mystery that the Apostle Paul is about to make absolutely known here in Ephesians chapter 3, that if we had been paying attention reading the Old Testament, we would have understood it. The Jews of Paul's day were largely ignorant of it. They were anticipating something else. That when Messiah came, there would still remain a sort of two-path way to heaven, the Jewish way and the Gentile way. That was not God's intention. And it's not what God had revealed, if you will, according to those prophetic breadcrumbs throughout the Old Testament. Rather, what God revealed was that uh, all of the families of the earth will be blessed in Abraham. And when that comes to fruition in Christ, then there is the, quote, revelation of, of the mystery. Now notice several times in this passage the first one is the reception of the mystery. Paul says I've received this mystery to unfold. He'll talk about the character of the mystery. 
He'll talk about the substance of the mystery. He'll talk about the herald of the mystery, the preaching of the mystery, and the fellowship of the mystery. So there is certainly a large and unifying theme in chapter 3 here. So Paul has received this mystery, notice, by revelation in verse 3. The Lord gave Paul the unfolding of this that was a that was formerly considered a mystery, he gave it to him by revelation. The Lord Jesus Christ met with the Apostle Paul. Paul will speak of this in a couple of different occasions, but the largest one is late in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he says, I was taken up into the third heaven, and I saw things that are not lawful for a man to speak about, and so on. Visions of the Lord. So Paul received this by revelation. This is not simply human conjecture, Paul will say. The character of a mystery is that it is hidden for a time, but then revealed. So Paul is getting ready then to reveal this mystery. Uh, The the revealers of that mystery were the apostles themselves. Um, It is not something that cannot be understood. Sometimes you'll, you'll hear people say, well, that's a mystery. It can't be understood. Biblically speaking, that's not what mystery means. It simply means that for a time it's hidden and then it is revealed. It doesn't mean you can't understand it. Uh, sometimes we'll, we, we, we will talk to people about the deeper things of the faith and they'll say, oh, that's a mystery. I want to say, no, it's not a mystery. It's not a mystery. You can understand it. But mystery doesn't mean not understandable. Mystery means hidden and then revealed. What is the substance of the mystery? That's verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. And when Paul says by the gospel, he means the Abrahamic promise. Gentiles inherit the Abrahamic promise. That's the mystery. Jews thought because they were the physical descendants of Abraham, that they, would, that they would be those who received the Abrahamic blessing and the Gentiles would get some other blessing that we don't know about yet. Paul says, nope. That's not what the intention of the Old Testament prophets were. It's never God's intention. It was mysterious, perhaps because it was unseen by many. But now let me reveal it to you. The Gentiles are fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. They are of the same body. You remember in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem council, we had a controversy over that. Do the, do the Gentiles, when they come to faith in Christ, in order to be saved, need to come to all the way to Jewish circumcision in order to be true Christians? The answer to that question was no. No. You're all under that same body, but now circumcision or uncircumcision availeth nothing but a new creature, Paul will say. Okay, so that's the mystery. The mystery is uh, there weren't very many folks that understood what we're going to do with the Gentiles when they come to faith. They are part of the same body. That's what Paul says there in verse 6. So then, whereof I was made a minister. I'm a minister of this gospel and this mystery. So the herald of the mystery, verse 7 is the Apostle Paul. It is not an honor he took to himself. He is the least of all saints. Notice his humility and a persecutor of the church. 
but it's by the working of God's power in preparation and in presentation, and it's according to the riches of his grace that Paul would choose some that the Lord would choose someone like Paul. The preaching of the mystery then is that Paul would declare to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So there is no there's no bar to where the gospel ought to go. It ought to go to the whole world. When we talk about the free offer of the gospel, what we mean by that is that we are able to offer Christ to all kinds of men freely. We tell someone that they have a warrant to believe because whosoever believeth on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There is no faith in vain, in other words. Right? Now, we don't know who God has elected and who God has reprobated. We don't know the answer to that question. So, we preach to everyone. We believe in the what, is, what has been historically called the promiscuous preaching of the gospel. That is, that it should go out to every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And when we find uh, the, the people of God, the, the, uh, the church triumphant, represented in visionary form in the book of Revelation, we will hear that they are folks from every kindred, tribe, and tongue. The Lord has his elect all over the world. So the gospel should go all over the world and gather in the Lord's elect. And that's what we mean by the free offer of the gospel, that we offer Christ freely to everyone. We don't mean by the free offer of the gospel that God somehow has a saving intention toward every man, but he keeps that secret. He doesn't tell us that. God does not have a saving intention toward everyone that has ever been born. He doesn't. I don't know uh, how that exactly works out uh, in... You know, uh, I mean, there are, there are large theological discussions that have been had about that. We don't need to hash those out here. One of the things we need to remember, though, is that God is sovereign and that salvation by faith alone through the grace of Christ is a gift that God gives. And in some cases, God simply passes by and withholds that gift. He does that. And he does so in perfect uprighteousness and perfect holiness. So, there is a command to all men everywhere to repent. We read about that in Acts chapter 17. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And so there is what we would call the revealed will of God. And the revealed will of God that has been revealed to all men is what? Repent and believe Jesus Christ. That is a revealed command. And in that sense, we can speak of God's revealed will as that which is God has commanded to every man. However, when it comes to God's secret will, that's why we call it secret. Right? That's why we call it secret. And so, um, that's also not a mystery, by the way. We can understand that from Scripture. That the preaching of the gospel, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, can be a savor of life unto life or a savor of death unto death. And in both of those cases, a sweet savor of Christ to God. Okay? So, the gospel does need to be preached to every kindred, tribe, and tongue. Churches need to be established in every part of the world. And the the preaching of the gospel, the power of God unto salvation, needs to be pressed in every corner of the earth. 
Every corner. Because God has people there. Every kindred, tribe, and tongue. We don't know exactly where. That's why we preach to everybody. Paul will say to the Colossian church, in a couple of books hence, he'll say, the gospel's been preached to every creature under heaven. He doesn't mean every individual person that ever lived under heaven. What he means by that is that it goes everywhere. Every creature. All men. Everywhere you go. Everywhere there is a church of Jesus Christ to go forth. So that's the preaching of the mystery. And then the fellowship of the mystery is the next. And the fellowship of that mystery, the word fellowship, koinonia, means the sharing or participation in that mystery. Notice that not only is the mystery to be revealed to the Gentiles, but they are to participate in it. That is, they are to become partakers of the household of faith. The Gentiles, all kinds of Gentiles, share in that mystery. So we are made partakers of the covenant of grace, and it is for this end that the Apostle Paul himself is sent to the Gentiles by the grace of God, and he has in mind their conversion to Christ. So the fellowship of the mystery is that Paul is a worker in that mystery. The Gentiles receive that. They come to faith in Christ. Then those Gentile churches become what we call three self-churches, right? They become self-supporting. They become um, self-propagating and self-governing. And they go out. and And so the fellowship of that mystery is that we don't need Jews anymore to preach the gospel to Gentiles. Gentiles can preach to Gentiles too. So that goes out over the whole world. We see also again in this section the humility of Christ. And notice that this is the intention of the Lord before the world was made. And so we see the mission of the apostle to make this known to all men. Finally we have in this mystery the revelation of the manifold wisdom of God. Not only is the mystery itself revealed, but in it being revealed we have the revelation of the manifold wisdom of God. That is the multifaceted and indescribably deep wisdom of God. That God has chosen to have this gospel go forth in this way. Well, as we have said before, no one else would have decided to do it that way. God is incredibly, unimaginably wise. And this plan will have success because it is his plan. And so it is... In this revelation of the mystery, it's also a revelation of the manifold wisdom of God. So that Gentiles would see their interest in the gospel, which they might be inclined to think they never had. Uh, But then also it'll be manifested before the, it says, before those principalities and powers. What does he mean by that? That to the heavenly host, there is also a manifestation of God's wisdom. We talked about this when we were back in the first part of 1 Peter, where Peter would say that this preaching of the gospel, that angels desire to look into this, right? We think of the, of, of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is this, this golden lid, it's, right? The Ark itself is a box made of gopher wood. It's got a lid on it, and the lid is made of gold. And cast into that gold lid as a part of it are two cherubim that tower up over the top of this lid with their eyes 
inward and downward, and their wings spread out over like that. And what are they looking at? They're looking at the lid of the box. And why do they look at the lid? Because once a year, the high priest entered in with a golden bowl full of blood, and he dipped his index finger on his right hand seven times into that bowl and sprinkled on the top of that lid like that. And the angels represented by those cherubim, they are watching, watching, watching. And why are they watching? Because the angelic host knows no redemption. The only redemption they know is what they behold in the redemption of sinners, human beings, or what the old divines called mankind sinners. Angels, once they fell, they fell forever and never to be retrieved again. They had no federal head. They had no, no Adam. They were each individually created. They chose to follow Satan, some of them. And they were taken out into chains of darkness at that time. And there is no redemption for them. And among the elect angels, seeing that they never fell, they will never know what it is to be redeemed. How can that thrice holy God, from which the angels will what? Hide their face, hide their feet, and so on. How does that holy God bring sinners into communion with himself? I don't know. Let's watch. And so that's what they do. And so God will make his manifold wisdom known, not only to the church, not only to the Gentiles, but also to the heavenly host. That manifold wisdom of his, in which in the eternal counsels of the triune God, there were promises made, covenants given, that would indeed result in what? The bringing of sinners into the presence of the thrice holy God, from whom angels although greater in might and power, will hide their face. So they desire to look into it, and they watch it. And then finally, we, we note that this eternal purpose of God includes our access to the throne of grace in confidence. Confidence not in ourselves, but in our mediator. And so this revelation is by the church, that is by the work that the Lord does in his church. That's how God makes manifest his manifold wisdom. All right, so then uh, Paul goes on to speak in this last section of the chapter about, uh, therefore I desire that ye faint not for my tribulations for you, which is your glory. After having said what he said, now we are more able perhaps to understand why the Apostle Paul and others like him would endure such hardship for the preaching of the gospel. If the gospel is indeed, or the preaching of the gospel, the manifestation of the mystery, if that is indeed a manifestation of the glory of God, of the grace of God, of the mercy of God in Christ, if it is a lifting up of the triune God, well, then that's a cause worth suffering for. And so the apostle Paul will say, Wherefore I desire that ye faint not and my tribulations for you, which is your glory. There were times, we read about this in the book of Acts, don't we? I, I believe it's chapter 21 where they tell the Apostle Paul, uh, you, can't go to, you can't go to Jerusalem. You're going to be arrested. And you're going to be taken to Rome. And if you're taken to Rome, you might be beheaded. No, no, no. You can't do that. You remember what Paul will say. What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? I'm ready not only to go to Jerusalem, but to die if I need to. 
This is a cause, beloved, that is indeed worth trouble, worth tribulation, worth sacrificing for. There are all kinds of causes that people suffer for, right? Uh, what did, what was it that, that, the, uh, that the patriot said, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country? A country that, you know, comes and goes in, in, across the pages of human history? You'll die for that? You'll suffer for that? What about for an eternal cause? What about for the spreading of eternal glory? So Paul says, please don't, uh, don't uh, suffer. Don't, uh, what was the word he used? Don't faint at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. All right, so now Paul will pray in verse 14. We love it when the Apostle Paul prays, especially when those prayers are recorded so that we might uh, get an example of what it means to pray, right? So I bow my knees unto the Father and so on. This is in verse 14. So first of all, we see the address of the prayer, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice who Paul addresses in his prayer. He addresses the Father. This, I believe, is in keeping with what Christ said to his disciples in the upper room discourse. You will notice in my prayers that I, that I don't pray, uh, generally speaking, I, I don't pray to the Son and I don't pray to the Spirit. Especially when I'm leading a group of folks because I, um, I, I have great confidence in what our Lord Jesus Christ said when he said that you'll ask the Father in my name. And so that's how I pray. That, that is my habit. Notice that Paul says, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's consistent biblical doctrine there. That our prayers are made to the Father. As Jesus will say, for the Father himself loveth you. Right? Okay, so that. Uh, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Notice the breadth of that prayer. Paul will say, we are all by creation, the children of God. The whole family in heaven and earth is named from him. This is very, very helpful in this chapter on the mystery that Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. And then notice the substance of his prayer that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. When we pray for one another that the Lord would strengthen us in the inner man, that's a biblical prayer. When we pray for one another that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, that we would be united to him by faith, that we would abide, that's that word dwell there, that we would abide with him by faith. We are praying a biblical prayer. That when we pray for one another, that we would be rooted and grounded in love. That is, in the keeping of all of God's commands. Love towards God and love toward our fellow men. Rooted and grounded in love. That we may pray for, for one another also for understanding. That we may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And to know the love of Christ. Even though it passes knowledge, that we might be able to advance in that knowledge. Right? And then notice also that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. May I say that that's one of those statements where Pastor Todd simply holds his arms out and goes like that. What does that mean? 
that we would be filled with all of the fullness of God. Well, I think one thing that we can say for sure about it is that we ourselves would be advanced to the greatest of our created capacity to commune with and understand who God is, to enjoy his love and mercy, that we would be advanced to the utmost degree that our created order would allow for. Right? There is something yet that is left to us. We read about this in our larger catechism. We say that, that um, when we die, something that immediately takes place in us is that our, you know, our bodies go into the ground. We are in our, in our souls brought into heaven. And at that point, we are advanced in our capability to commune with the Lord. And I believe that's not the final advancement that we will enjoy. The final advancement we will enjoy will be at the resurrection. And then beyond that, we will grow in or toward or, or in communion with God for all of eternity. And seeing that that is an, an infinite and unfathomable well, we will then for all eternity continue to advance in Him. I don't understand all of that. I can, I can say it in words. It's difficult to be specific beyond those words. But Paul is praying that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. That is, with all the fullness that we in these created frames can handle, can tolerate, can receive. And that will be in stages uh, here in this earth as we advance in that meager way, then when we advance at our death, and then when we, when we advance in the resurrection. And all of those are included. They are purchased by the work of Jesus Christ. Okay, so now we come to the end of the chapter. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And this is what we call a doxology. Um, you'll remember, I hope, the, the difference between a doxology and a benediction. A benediction is a blessing that we receive a doxology is a praise that we offer up to God. And so, so the direction of those two things is different. right? Pastor Todd gives a benediction at the end of the service. That's a blessing upon all of you. And, and, I, and, and I do that not just because it's a fun thing for me to do. I do that because I'm commanded to do it in the scripture. right? The ministers of, of the gospel are commanded by God to bless the people in the name of the Lord. That's something you should crave, by the way. But a doxology is when we turn our eyes upward now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Uh, but to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ. Well, let me leave you with this. If the apostle <clears throat> in his doxology toward God says to us for our understanding and safekeeping that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us, then we ought to be encouraged to ask and to think. He's able to do beyond what we can ask or think. Well then, let's go ahead and ask and think. Right? Let's ask him for those things that we have heard about here in chapter 3. With that then, let's stand and call